quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Stan McChrystal is an interesting amalgam of four-star general who was the commander of Allied forces in Afghanistan, the leader of special forces who hunted down terrorists in Iraq, and now a scholar at Yale University writing thoughtful treatises on the nature of leadership, including his latest book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality, I sat down with McChrystal in Chicago the other day when he came to visit the Institute of Politics to talk about his career, the nature of leadership, and the leader we have today. General Stan McChrystal, it's great to see you again. It's great to see Um, you. You know, uh, there's so much to talk about going on right now, but I'm I'm really interested in in your journey. Sure. And... um, uh, the, the first thing that's striking is that it was, it seems almost preordained uh, that you should have ended up in the military as, as, as a general. Maybe that wasn't preordained. But uh, tell me a little bit about your, your family and that history. Sure. Um, I was one of six kids. Uh, my father, when I was born, was an Army captain. Uh, 30 years old. My mother was 29, and she was from the South, from Tennessee, and had a, you know, pretty traditional Southern upbringing. Although she was very liberal and pretty politically involved, my father was from a military family. His father had been a soldier, a career soldier, and so how, how did they meet? Um, my this is a great story. My father uh, was introduced when he was at Fort Benning, Georgia, to her, and. Um, he, my mother was a very attractive young girl and pretty. She was once quoted as saying, I don't know what to do. There are so many men I could make happy. <laughs> <laughs> and so he met her, fell in love, and then he deployed. What was she doing? Was she living there? She was, a, she was living there, but a, a reporter uh-huh. for a local newspaper. And so uh, he goes off to Germany. It's, he graduated in 1945, so he's in Occupation Army with this Southern Belle as his fiancée in his mind. Well, in her mind, she's not the fiancée. So he comes home a couple. That's years, awkward. Exactly. Yeah. He, he comes home a couple years later to marry her, and she has not at all decided whether she's going to marry this guy. But he lands. He gets with her, and my mother brings her sister along, her younger sister, and they ride in the car with the sister between them, and it's very awkward. And finally, that the sister goes to who, the lady who became my mom. If you don't want him, I'll take him. <laughs> but after twenty four hours of talking, my dad convinces her to marry him. They get married. And begin this wonderful life, and she died young at age forty-five. Yeah, I know. I well, I want to ask you a little bit about that because your dad, you know, yeah. as in most military yeah. families, he was gone a lot. He was, and so your mom was kind of the hub of everything. 
Yeah, my mom was this amazingly energetic, uh, charismatic personality. And so when I was young with the six kids, she was the, the glue that held the family together. Where were you in the six? I was four. Mm-hmm. There were four, and then there was a six-year break, and then two. And those mm-hmm. two lived a much better life, <laughs> as we always say. But my dad was a soldier, but we spent most of the time in the D.C. area. So he worked in the Pentagon and in different places. But he was always my hero. I always knew from like age three I wanted to be a soldier. Sort of reflexive. If you asked me what I wanted to do at age five, I'd say I'm going to the Army. Uh, my mother was not so sure that that was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, Why? Well, um, she was against the Vietnam War. She didn't go out and – my dad was fighting it, so she didn't go out and protest it. But she thought that maybe I ought to think about other things. You know, I, I was very close to my mother. I, we, we read a lot of the same things. If, if there was any of the six kids who just had sort of an intellectual collection of my mom, it was probably me. Yeah. And you have quite a literary bent, and that must come from, from prob- her. Probably sounds better than it is. <laughs> yeah. But she was always interested in mythology when she was young and Knights of the Round Table, and she shared those old books with me. So we had this really close relationship and my father would do tours in Vietnam and then come back and my mother would hold this family together while we were gone and then my father came back and uh, in 1971 literally my mother got sick one morning and by after midnight she was dead her kidneys had failed just suddenly I mean she was perfectly healthy athletic tennis player and boom my father is now a brigadier general relatively young Six kids, widowed, and it was a really tough time for the family. How uh, how about for you? You were, what, 16, 17 16. years old? Yeah. And uh, as you say, you were quite close. She was obviously the the, 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 the parent who was there most most right. of your life. Yeah. Um, how did how'd you cope with that? You know, at first, you don't know how to process it because, you know, here I, I'd seen my father and I wanted to be a soldier. And so I thought that stoicism was, you know, the order of the day. And my father certainly did. And so my father tried to be very stoic, but it literally swept his legs out from under him. And uh, so for the next few years, he was, he really struggled. Uh, he had challenges with alcohol and, and all of these things for the next few years. The family essentially split up. My two younger brothers went to live with my sister. You know, a bunch of things happened that, that just rocked the family. And um, I tried to, to say, okay, this is, you know, you just you, you lose someone and you just move on. And I went to West Point about a year and a half later. Um, but... But what the real loss was, one, the loss of my mother, but it was also the loss of the family. We were actually never the same after that. Yeah. I still have my my five other siblings and, and love them to death, but my mom, my father died a few years ago, and my stepmom's still alive. She's the great good news story here, but um, we just never were the same family again. Yeah. And then my father, after about four years of really drift and ended his army career and whatnot, he met this, another young, or another Southern girl, and they were married for 38 years. Oh, my. Incredibly happy, and then he passed a few years ago. Yeah. You went to West Point, as you mentioned, and by all accounts, you were kind of a hellraiser there. (laughs) Part of what I wondered was um, how much of that was, like when you're stoic 
and you're dealing with a tremendous loss, um, you know, uh, it has to come out some somehow. That was one thought I had. The other is you're there in a sense, as I said, because it was sort of preordained that you would be. But so what was it, do you think, yeah. that caused you to be such a, such a rebel there? Yeah, I, I love to claim it on some factor like the loss of my mother or something. Actually, I was probably just ill-disciplined. And, um, but, but you hit on something that mattered. You know, I, I wanted to go to West Point from the earliest age. It was the only college I applied to. And I didn't hear acceptance until the last week of May of my senior year. So I think everybody else had been accepted. And finally, they got a couple extra slots, <laughs> and I, I get in. So it was a little white-knuckled. But when I went to West Point, I didn't go to West Point to go to West Point. A lot of people did. This was you know, an amazing place, great opportunity. I went to West Point to be an Army officer. And so West Point was just a thing I had to do to mm -hmm. do it. So I got there not taking it very seriously. I didn't study very hard. And for the first two years, um, you know, I just did a lot of things that were boneheaded. But it just seemed to me if I'm going to be an Army officer and go to Vietnam or wherever the Army's going to serve, what happens at West Point doesn't matter. So I had a very difficult first two years. I almost flunked out, almost got thrown out for, for – uh, um, Lack of discipline. And had, then, they had you marching quite a bit in your dress uniform. Yeah, they call them punishment tours, an hour back and forth. And yeah. I did 128 of them. That's got to be still. Uh, you, you, everybody wants to have records. That, that, has to be, <laughs> that has to be a record. It certainly puts me in an elite crowd. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it's funny. One of the other guys who had, was way up there with me in my class, uh, Frank Kearney, also ended up as a three-star general and a great warrior. So, I mean, I yeah. don't equate... But I, but I was lucky. At the beginning of my junior year, several things happened. Um, we shifted out of hard sciences and into history and English more, and so I was a little more Those comfortable your there. Interests, yeah. I started dating this little girl um, who was an Army brat, and she and I have been married 42 years now. Um, so she gave me a little bit of stability and discipline. And then I had this tactical officer come in. And at the beginning of junior year, he does this counseling session with me, at, you know, right at the beginning. And he says, you're going to be a great Army officer. And I'm looking at him saying, I think you <laughs> get the wrong file. This is Stan McChrystal. He goes, no. And he pulled it out. He says, let me show you what you're good at and what you're not good at. You're going to stop all that discipline stuff. And he just announced it. He didn't ask me. And you're going to do X and you're going to be a great soldier. And it was amazing. There I was walked. something in there about your uh, the, the your peer review from exactly. your, your your peers. Uh, what, what did he say about that? Well, yeah, because you have your grades, academic grades, and your athletic grades. My peer reviews twice a year, actually three times a year, they do this thing where everybody rates all your peers, and I had done very well there. And they actually found out that that is a very high correlation to success in the military. And he was a West Point graduate and a Vietnam veteran. And his sense was the things that really matter are your ability to work with people. And so he just announced to me that your peer reviews are very strong. I focus on this, and you're going to be a great soldier. Someone, uh, somewhere I read that, you, uh, that your, uh, your peers compared you to uh, Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> yeah, not, maybe not in a positive sense. <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe hard-headed. <laughs> um, so for, uh, I, I want to talk a, a, a little bit later about your, your, your latest book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality, but uh, you, you are a, 
certifiably great leader. I think those who served with you and under you uh, would say that. What, what did that experience with that TAC officer teach you that you carried with you going forward? Because you must have seen a bunch of raw, yeah. undisciplined people yeah. uh, as you were moving up the chain of command who you saw, you, you know, talent and promise. Uh, yeah, exactly. I remember at the beginning of my West Point uh, career, I got in trouble with this colonel who gave me a hard time for not having a collar stay in my shirt, which kept your uh, collar down. And he equated it to not bringing ammunition to the battle. And I remember thinking at the time, I was just a plebe. I said, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> I still think it was pretty stupid. This guy came in. I trust you kept that thought to yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, this guy came in and he just exuded, he understood what was important, leadership, trusting people, building their confidence. And so later in my career, what I found is if you are genuine and you are real and you are viewed to be uh, competent, when you extend confidence down to somebody who's young, when you show them trust, even if they, they're going to have some challenges, they're going to screw some stuff up, when you throw that, it has an amazingly powerful effect. He did that to me, and it just... For the rest of my career, that's one of those lessons I never forgot. And so you try to do it with young people, particularly maybe where they're going a really tough time. Maybe they just screwed something up. I just screwed two years up. And yet he said, doesn't matter. It's past. Let's move forward. Yeah. Uh, I, I think most people who are successful in life can point to that figure in their life. Often it's a teacher who uh, who. who who picked them up and gave them a sense of possibility. Really important. So you uh, you entered the service at the end of the Vietnam right. War. I wanted to ask you about I think about it often. You know, I go to these, uh, I go to sporting events, and at every sporting event now, a veteran is introduced, and invariably people stand and cheer. But I remember the 70s and how, and, and, how hard it was for Vietnam veterans coming home because the war was so reviled. And they, as, as people who went and served their country, were somehow tainted by it, which seemed grossly unfair. But tell me what that period was like. Yeah, I remember as a plebe at West Point still, we got our first time off. We went to New York City. And we had to be in our dress gray uniforms. It was after a football game. And, and so we're walking down the street in New York City, and a car drove by, and a girl kind of leaned out of a window and then gave us the finger. You know, <laughs> you know it's just, you're, you're saying, oh, wait a minute. Um, and you think about the people who went and did so much more, went and fought in Vietnam, and then you suddenly have this hatred and, and uh, toward them. And it just wasn't deserved by the individuals. Because the soldier does not equal the war. That's a political issue. And so that was a national disgrace. I think we decided over a number of years to change that. It, it came upon with the resurrection of the more professional force in the Army in the 70s and 80s and then the first Gulf War, and it mm -hmm. just kept building up. I think there is a tipping point. I think we have to be careful because I think now we have this idea that soldiers must be put on the pedestal and must be kowtowed to. 
simply because they're soldiers. And yet, I don't think that's entirely healthy. I think soldiers are us. They're like any other civil servant. And sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. Back in the World War II era, when so many people served, there wasn't that aura from afar. So I think we're going to have to get back to a more uh, realistic view. But the idea you're going to respect young soldiers particularly is pretty valuable. It is. I uh, I often think about the fact that all the, uh, so many of those people who stand, and now, of course, most of the people who are in these arenas are pretty well off. And they stand and they cheer, but they haven't served right. themselves. So in a sense, they're saying, thanks for doing that job instead of me. Um, so uh, you became a you 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 are a, a you're a scholar of Vietnam and what what are the lessons that you learned from from that war? Yeah, um, I think the first is the limits of power. Um, you know, when I studied that, I think it was good people trying to get a good outcome that made a bunch of bad decisions. So the fact that we got into Vietnam wasn't because there was some evil person trying to get us into a war that would bleed America. That's that's not my read. Instead, people were trying to navigate something that was hard. Now, they made some pretty bad decisions. Um, one of the first they made was they weren't upfront with the American people. They, they had information that actually was different from what they were telling the American people. And so they were saying, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel, this is going to be easier than it's going to be because that was more palatable. That's a basic issue of credibility of government, and it ran in a bunch of places. The other, however, was this idea that we could go into a country like Vietnam and we could try to do things militarily, and it looked like it was screaming to be done. Uh, But the basic fabric of society... I think the Vietnam War, people say the Vietnam War was lost in the newspapers, on the TVs. or I think the Vietnam War was lost in the hamlets. And I think when the, uh, the government of South Vietnam was unable to create a credible competing governance structure against the local uh, apparatus that the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese supported, that it's kind of hard to get there. Now, we can extrapolate that forward to Afghanistan because, in reality, many of exactly the same things apply. It's extraordinarily similar. Um, And so when we think about what we can do and we think about, okay, well, we'll do the military part and we'll hope the other part. If the other part doesn't work, the military part can't have its effect. And so— well, and in fact, if 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 you don't have both parts and the American military is the point of the spear, then you actually exacerbate That's right. this sense of uh, of you have the reverse effect and essentially organize the the, the populace against you. Yeah, that's right. Even even trying to do all the right things, and that's the thing. Intentions, in that sense, matter because you have to operate with good intentions. But they don't matter on the outcome. If you can't do certain things and you can't convince the populace of certain things, then the military part does become an irritant. If the, uh, the Vietnamese people or the Afghan people or you name it think that they're, they're hosting a war in their country, but there's no realistic possible or likely positive outcome, they just want the war to stop. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about that because you're 
one of the major proponents of uh, of counterinsurgency yeah. strategies. Yeah. And um, what are the limits of those? I mean, yeah. you know, we'll talk about this in a minute, but um, I was just a little fly on the wall during that very tense yeah. conversation, set of conversations back in 2009 right. about the way forward in Afghanistan. And, and that was a question that the president was always trying to right. get to the bottom of, which is, is this a is is there an end point here where we can say we we've stabilized the country there is civ- there is governance there is a civil society yeah. and enough of a foundation to uh you know so that we can leave and feel uh that they're secure we're secure and so on and it wasn't clear um so now 10 years later sure. talk a little bit about that sure um I'm conflicted. I mean, I could argue either side of this with almost equal passion. On the negative side, you can simply say that a country that has enough trouble to have a going insurgency typically has governance issues and social issues and whatnot. And Afghan had more than even most cases. And so uh, you just can make an argument that says, well, you just can't change Afghanistan or you can't change it enough. Therefore, we should walk away. And we should just let whatever happens, happens. And that's the logical, that's almost the investor-like decision because you say no good money after bad money. Um, But when you get up close to it and you see the number of Afghan females that were, we were able to get into school. When you talk to Afghan people, even down in villages and whatnot, you, you get a sense of what they want. It gets a lot murkier because suddenly they don't believed that the Taliban, most did not believe that the Taliban was where they wanted to go. So now you run into this almost a moral dilemma. Um, what you feel like you must try to do, and those of us close to it are no longer unbiased, um, close to it, very much want to give the Afghan people in this effort a chance. And we had walked away from Afghanistan once before at the end of the Soviet period, mm-hmm. and they, had, they felt the abandonment of that. Um, and so you suddenly are up close and you say, well, it's a long shot, but I think we have a moral, uh, commitment to do this. Well, moral commitments in foreign policy are, are problematic because you can do things for moral reasons that, that aren't doable. I think in Afghanistan, when I am most critical of my own effort was, I took the mission that I believe that the president had given me for my last time there as the commander. And uh, the mission said, okay, try to create enough stability to do X, which meant you had to create enough stability to have a government. Um, And I think that we had to put forces in to allow the growth of the Afghan army because we'd been there eight years and hadn't done really anything. So you had to give that a shot. But the problem was... Could it work? Did we have enough realistic time? And in that time, could you get the Afghan army far enough? And could you get Afghan governance moving far enough in the right direction to convince the Afghan people? Um, You know, there are days I'll tell myself, no, you know, we couldn't and I was unrealistic. And there are other days I'll say, well, maybe we could have. Um, But, But, you know, there's another element of it. I I read a, a... a, an account of a speech that you gave while you were the commander, and you noted the fact that 
you were talking to some young enlistee and and somehow it came up that they were having their braces removed uh, when the war in Afghanistan right. began. And now they were right. serving, and that was eight years in, and now we're 17 years in. Right. And, um, you know, the question is sort of the tolerance of, of the country for th- yeah. that long an effort and how you make yeah. the political case that this is necessary, it's yeah. important, and that moral obligation uh, requires the con- that continued investment. Yeah, part of it is the American personality. Henry Kissinger once made an observation that said, after World War II, every time the United States entered a war, as soon as we got into it, we started a political fight of how we're going to get out of it. And what that essentially did is it made it impossible for us to prosecute it effectively because there was too much internal and our foes got it. I think that we enter wars with a mindset that they are going to have a clear beginning, middle, and an end. We're going to march across Europe to Berlin, capture Berlin, then come home. Forget that we still haven't come home from Europe. We're still there doing counterinsurgency. The Marshall Plan was counterinsurgency. You just did it done at a different period. Um, so I think part of it is how we think about the world and how we think about requirements and investments. If you say, okay, we're going to fight a huge war and lose a lot of people, but it's going to last a month, the American people probably pretty tolerant of that. If you fight a war and lose a relatively modest number of service members over 20 years, people say, no, we won't do that. It's We're bleeding America. We lost 49,000 Americans to firearms in the United States last year. That's more that by a factor of 10 than we've lost in Afghanistan in 17 years. It, I'm not in any way saying that the loss in Afghanistan aren't significant, but we have to think about time and horizons and how long it takes to do certain things in a realistic way. And we need to communicate that to the American people. You know, I remember after Mogadishu, everybody started this discussion that said the United States can't stand casualties. You kill some Americans, they quit. They leave Somalia. That was wrong. What we found is the United States can stand casualties. The United States can't stand stalemate or sense that we're not succeeding. And because our time horizons get pretty tight, um, you compare that to the North Vietnamese who said, how long are we going to fight? As long as it takes. Forever. How many people will we lose? Many as it takes. The Taliban saying, we'll be here forever. So if you, if you say, okay, we can only be here a certain amount of time, you almost guarantee failure. And so I think that we've got to think that about that. That was your objection. Uh, obviously, the, you had a difference of opinion with the president about that. Yeah, exactly. I think if, president Obama, I'm talking if it's important enough, you need to think. Now, I'm not a political guy, so you know, I, don't, I don't factor in the domestic politics of it. But I think as soon as you try to put a time on it that doesn't align with the time of the combatants in the fight, you guarantee you're not going to Yeah, succeed. I guess the flip side of it is what you said earlier, which is there's no guarantee that you can stay there in perpetuity right. and, and achieve the desired result. And right. so you're talking about not just lives, but yeah. quite a, uh, a financial investment. I, I didn't mean to get here so quickly, no. but um, since we're here, yeah. um, my experience, exposure to you was during that period. Yeah. I also was there when you were 
dismissed when you were relieved. You re- right. you offered your resignation, and it was yeah. accepted. And that was around a, um, it was around a piece that in Rolling Stone, yeah. uh, in which you allowed a reporter inside your yeah. inner councils, and he reported everything that happened, including some derisive comments about yeah. the vice president, the national security advisor, and others. Um, I remember the discussion internally because the president really had a high regard for you, and but uh, there also was this issue of how do you maintain an orderly chain of command? If, yeah. if uh, tell me what your thoughts were then. When I, I remember when I saw the piece, I can only imagine what you thought when you saw the piece. Yeah. Um, first off, we didn't let him in the inner councils. We had a. We were doing a bunch of press because, in reality, there was nobody selling the war, um, sort of, except us out there. And so I was doing more press than I wanted to. And he was one of a number of embeds. But he wasn't around us a long time. He was around for a few uh, set interactions. But he did interact with my staff. And he wrote this article that we had thought was going to be a pup piece, you know, just kind of, you know, guys who'd been together for years at war. And then you guys should have done a little more research on Michael Hastings because that wasn't his thing. But, you know, it's interesting you say that because he'd been interacting with us. And then we went to uh, Europe because we were asked to go talk to the French assembly and all this kind of stuff. My wife flew over to join us and she said, have you guys vetted this guy? And I said, well, I assume the team did. And she said, I read his book from Iraq. And I said, yeah. She goes, it's a hatchet job. I said, "Uh uh-oh. So that night, Michael Hastings comes to, we have my 33rd anniversary. I go with a very small group, about four or six of us, to dinner with my wife. Then we go join the this team. Is, this is uniquely military that you go for your 33rd anniversary dinner with your wife and your team. Well, close to, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, they're all family. And so uh, we then come back and my uh one of my guys says, the team's over around the corner at this Irish bar. Would you go join them and just, you know, kind of pump them up? So I go around to the Irish bar, and the reporter's there also. And uh, he paints this picture of this drunken craziness that wasn't. I had a French Foreign Legion officer. I had a German officer. I had an Afghan officer. I had a British officer. I had several Americans. You know, it was a very international team that's together fighting a war for a long time. And... Uh, at the end of the evening, we walk back to the hotel, and Annie goes, I'm glad he was there. I said, why? And she goes, he got to see what a team looks like. Well, then, this, then the article came out and, you know, didn't paint team at the top of that. But anyway, um, so the article comes out a couple months later, and I get woken up in the middle of the night and said the article came out. And I said, well, what's the issue? And he said, well, it's not good. So I read the article. As soon as I read the article, I said, okay, this is going to be a disaster. And I didn't try to investigate it in my team. I didn't go in and say who talked to him and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, or who could have said things that were wrong. I just called back to the sec def and the chairman. I said, okay, you know, what do you want me to do? This is pretty ugly. And then I was asked to fly back and see the president. Um, it was an out-of-body experience because essentially, indirectly, I'm being accused of being out of control and disloyal. And I always thought there were a thousand things that could happen to me. I could be fired for incompetence or get killed, but never that. And I never felt anything but loyalty toward President Obama. And uh, so I'm in this just incredible, 
But I also felt helpless. I felt like the wheels of this thing were just rolling. And so there was not much that I was going to be able to do about it. Um, flew back to the United States and uh, went to see the president, offered my resignation, and I told him, you know, whatever you want me to do. He said, what happened? I said, frankly, I don't know. I mean, he, the guy was around some. I don't know who said what. I haven't done it. I'll tell you the team is not. I don't think that's an accurate reflection of the team, but the article's out there and I own it. So here's my resignation. If you want it, great. If you don't want it, I'll go back and do whatever you tell me to do. Um, and he was very gracious and uh, professional. And and uh, I left. And, of course, kind of a thunderclap. Your, your life has changed dramatically on several levels. Um, the, the thing that I thought was most dis- disappointing about it was, and I understand political reality, but there wasn't enough interaction between me and the president. Mm-hmm. There wasn't, you know, over the previous year, I'm fighting a war for him. And we'd spoken three or so times. We'd never had, I'd asked several times for a two or three hour session where I could lay out my strategy. And the reason I wanted that one-on-one was not to see if he liked the strategy, but to see if he trusted me to do it. And then he sort of would have to buy that and give me his concerns directly. That didn't happen, which I think was unfortunate because when you have these kinds of things happen, there has to be some sinew of trust you build it on. And yet one of the things I learned about this was when a new administration's built or any new command, you bring a bunch of people in from different places, and they're not necessarily a team. They're pulling in different directions. They got different views. And so you're, you're dealing with a lot of complexities. And when you're a long way away and there's a lot of complexities happen somewhere else, it's And there's also, there are, there are intervening layers of bureaucracy. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, you're trying to navigate that. Yeah. There's also, there, there is a tension between the, the military and the civilian authority. Yeah. And I think that is, that was anticipated by the founders. And, you know, I yeah. always felt like uh, uh, when I was there that uh, you guys were doing the job that you, as best you thought you could and making the best recommendations you could, but you didn't have to factor in the other factors that a right. president would have to factor. I will only tell you this. Um, the president called, as soon as you left that day, the president called us in and he lectured everyone and he said, a good man just walked out of here uh, and he's not and lost his career. And I don't want anybody... That's nice. Anybody chortling about this? Or, this is a bad day. This is not a good day. Yeah. And uh, I know that's how he felt. You talk about your team. One member of your team has become quite famous uh, since that time. That's Mike Flynn, uh, who uh, was a uh, uh, an intelligence officer for you, and by all accounts, very good at what he did. One of the interpretations was they also needed you or someone to kind of rein him in a little. Uh, tell me about him as, and, and tell me what your feelings are about what's happened subsequently with him. Yeah. Uh, Mike Flynn's a friend of mine, and we work, we've known each other for a long time, and uh, um, we worked together for almost a decade straight in the hardest part of the Iraq War, and then he went to Afghanistan, one no notice with me and whatnot. 
So I got a lot of uh, deep affection for Mike. He was an incredible team builder. If Mike was here right now, he would be the most charming guy in the room. He would I've take, met him. Yeah, he would take his shirt off for you if you needed it. Boom, boom, boom. He could build a team to do things that were just extraordinary. And as part of JSOC, he really helped us move. And then in, in Afghanistan, as we're moving in the right direction, um, I think he did an amazing job of bringing different intel agencies together and whatnot. I was... I, of course, left, and he stayed in the service. And then the subsequent actions, he and I have diverged politically pretty uh, pretty significantly. Um, but Were I, you surprised when you saw him at the convention leading the locker-up chants? Yeah, I was. It wasn't the Mike Flynn that I knew that I had gotten so close to. Did and you I, talk to him about it? We, we have spoken, um, but... You know, everybody's an adult. Everybody makes their decisions. And I can't say he's wrong or right. I can just, you know, give my view. Um, but but I believe that you can't, you have to look at things holistically. I mean, there are times which I literally owe Mike Flynn my life. And so to me, whether he does things that I may disagree with, it doesn't make Mike Flynn somebody I don't still care about. Um, he obviously uh, now is in some deep straits uh, because of things he did, um, partly in service of, of President Trump. You've been very critical of President Trump uh, in recent months in particular, yeah. um, and especially when he... Uh, was critical of Admiral McRaven, uh, who was who had heroic service, um, uh, leading special forces and Navy SEALs. But talk to me about the president and uh, and the military. Yeah, yeah, it's tough um, because the the active military, okay, serves at for the nation. They mm-hmm. are loyal to the Constitution. The president is the commander in chief, so they are. By uh, almost by default, they are loyal to the president as well. But they're in a very difficult position, so they have to to do what they do. And I think they've done it with a remarkable amount of grace. And that's, you know, I don't know what they believe. You know, on active duty, you never talk about this stuff. You don't go to cocktail parties and talk about the president. You just don't. It's considered bad form. So I didn't even know on active duty who are the conservatives, liberals. It just um, was wrong. Uh I think retired military have got to be very circumspect about what they say because you are listened to because you're retired military. And the danger is you get out there and you speak one way or another strongly. That The shadow falls on the active military. And people start looking at them and they say, who here is different from me politically active or, you know. And so suddenly, you know, you can actually impact the active duty civil-military relationship in a bad way by doing that. Um, and so I think most active or most retired military try to be very careful. We had a line that I, that I did a lot of soul-searching on, and that line was, at a certain point, I felt like if I didn't say something, that that was more irresponsible than standing up and, and saying something. I didn't want silence to be de facto... Uh, concurrence mm-hmm. with what some of the things that the president has done. And so I, I made the decision to speak out. 
uh, but to try to do it in a way that was not really political. It was more based upon what I think America's leadership values are. And, uh, and that's where I come from on this. So I, I'm disturbed by where leadership's going in America. Um, I don't think it's just President Trump. I think it's much more broad. And as I sometimes tell people, I think it's time for us to stop worrying about the very few people at the top. Let's start looking in the mirror and let's deciding what we are doing, right or wrong, whether we are adhering to our values, whether we're being expedient, which is, can lead you down a morally bad path. And, and uh, that's what I think we need to think hard about. Yeah, your admonition, I mean, you call, I think you called the president moral. I did. Uh, which is a pretty strong word. Yeah. Um, I think honesty is very important uh, for all of us. I also think that there is a there's responsibility with senior leaders. When you are a senior leader in the military or in business, you have stated powers and you have implied powers. It's just like when a senior leader uses their power to take advantage of a young person sexually or financially mm-hmm. or whatever. You don't have to order them to do things. You can, you can cause things that, that are just wrong. I think um, if you are dishonest with your force, that there's a certain moral problem there, not beyond just dishonesty, because young soldiers are hardwired to believe their leaders. Hardwire. If you say, take the hill, and they look at you and they go, can we do that? And if you go, yep, we can do it. Um, you're trying to build their confidence, but there's a moral requirement to that because if it's if you don't believe that they can do it, uh, then there's there's a real challenge there. So I think when I talk about morals, I don't talk about you know somebody's sex life or something. I talk about that unique responsibility that leaders have for the people that they are responsible for and to. You uh, know General Mattis very well. Um, he obviously um, reached a point where he, he felt he couldn't serve anymore when the president made the decision on Twitter to withdraw from yeah. Syria uh, and when he started moving to withdraw from Afghanistan. Uh, what, what impact, and he was very, very tough on the president uh, without, you know, yeah. I mean, careful but tough in his resignation letter. What impact does that have on the force? Because he's, he was a highly, highly respected figure. You know, in the short term, it's a, it's a bit disruptive. You have a secretary of defense leave. You have a gap. You have people saying, okay, what next? But we always figure that out. But this is more than that. You have a highly respected f- former general right. beloved by right. the force and uh, saying, uh, you know, essentially saying, I don't have confidence in the commander-in-chief? Well, I won't speak for Jim, but I think when a senior leader of that level of credibility takes a stand that is principled and it is clear, it's positive because long-term, because each of us struggles with where is that line between being a good subordinate and following along and when you should stand up and say, no, this, this is not right. I think General Mattis picked an issue that he had a great problem with, but he, he really addressed a wider question. He says, I am so unaligned with you now that I can't loyally do the job that a Secretary of Defense ought to do. 
And that's a, that's a pretty good moral position. It's a clear one for young yes. military leaders to be able to be given. Yeah. I'm just wondering what uh, what young uh, people – I, I, I'm not criticizing Mattis for taking the position he took. Yeah. He took – a moral yeah. stand, um, and you, as you say, you want to encourage that. Right. But he also um, raised doubts that uh, that others must must have uh, up and down the yeah. chain of command. And we have a president yeah. who says he knows better than the generals, and he has chosen to go after McRaven, right. you, uh, Mattis, people who are you know legendary. Uh, for uh, their connection to uh, to rank and file members of the service. Yeah, it. I mean, it's unfortunate that you know the whole political tone is is shaped by things like that. It, it's not in any way helpful. I think Secretary Mattis raised the bar. You know, if he'd gotten down, he, I think he raised it and said, "We will be gentlemen and whatnot." I think younger leaders. Each have to make personal decisions. Now, Secretary Mattis was not asking young leaders to all, you know, suddenly leave the service. That's not the yeah, message. Right. Um, but I think what he's reminding everybody is we have several responsibilities. One of those are sort of written on paper to do certain things our bosses tell us. But another is to a higher standard, and that's a moral standard, and that's responsibility to the Constitution of the United States and then this responsibility to the people you serve. What was your view of the president's um, moves relative to Syria and Afghanistan? Yeah, I think that the president, uh, whether or not withdrawing from, um, from Syria is a good or bad idea or Afghanistan, I think how you do it matters a lot. Uh, my guess is that the president will find that not following a, a more complete process stops other people from getting on board with it. You know, you, you have to build a certain level of support and consensus for what you're going to do. Suddenly announcing something like that, it may sound decisive, but it leaves a lot of people thinking that, wait a minute, we didn't consider all the actions. So I think it, uh, it will turn out not to be the right way to have done it. Well, and in fact, it's not clear exactly what is being done uh, is the other point. And that may be another, you, you, you know, you as a scholar of leadership, um, uh, you know, President Obama ran into this issue on the red line in right. Syria. You know, if you say you're going to do something and it doesn't happen, it does create, yeah. Yeah. create questions. It, there's a great quote I got from, uh, actually from Diane Sawyer. She came to my class at Yale and she says, people will forgive leaders for not being as good as they should be but they won't forgive them for not being as good as they claim to be. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've always really grabbed that because interesting. Uh, I think that's true. People are very forgiven of leaders. If a leader makes a decision and it's a bad one and then they go, you know, I really boned that up. You know, we shouldn't have done that. Let me try to fix it. But if they deny that they boned it up or if they say I've got, you know, I'm prescient and omnipotent and all these things, people intuitively don't believe that. But then when it's proven, they get very frustrated. And so I think that that's very important. You know, a leader wants to appear confident and competent and all these things, but they're human. And at the end of the day, I think we don't want to step away from the fact that 
you know, we can make mistakes and and fix them. Classic example of that was uh, President Kennedy in the wake of the Bay of Pigs when he said, I'm the responsible officer right. of government, uh, which was powerful uh, and, and important. And he could have easily said the CIA and the military sold me a bill of goods. Right. And I came and I was new president. And that would have been very debilitating. In fact, when you see leaders blame everything on their predecessors, I think it's beneath them. I'd love to see a, a leader come in and say, I own everything. Yeah. Does it matter how we got here except to learn from? Right. And we will learn from the it. The buck stops here. But I own it now. If the economy's lousy, I'm, I'm the president, or whatever my particular role is. I think people would be refreshed by that. General, as we speak, the Supreme Court ruled on uh, the Trump administration's policy of barring uh, transgender people from serving in the military. Um, it was a what I think we'll see more of, five to four uh, decision. General Mattis uh, opposed that order. What, what, what is your sense of it and what the impact of it might be? I think it's a mistake. Um, I remember 25 or so years ago when there was a panel of senior military and defense officials asked about females in combat. And they made the argument that the military exists to get things done, and therefore you don't want to do anything that undercuts the efficiency or effectiveness. And they used that argument against females in combat. Of course, the same argument had been used against integrated units, and you go back as far as you want. We're in a country now where only about 30% of young people qualify to enlist in the military. About 70% for legal, physical, other reasons cannot. Um, if we have people who want to serve, if they have the desire the capacity to serve. I think it's a mistake to lose that talent. I also think it's a mistake to send any message that says that somebody with those attributes, the willingness and the capability to serve, uh, not being welcome is a negative message to send. So I, I think it's unfortunate. They, they may have been well-intentioned, but I think that time will prove, unfortunately, it sounds like it'll take more time till we get to the point where we say no. Patriots with a capacity should be able to serve America in any way that is best for them. You know, I want to ask you a couple of other things about your history. Sure. Um, one is, uh, I was interested in your service in the Pentagon uh, in the run-up to the Iraq War, because yeah. you've written and spoken about this, and it was yeah. pretty clear that you had concerns that, you 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 know, what... what began as a mission to pressure Saddam yeah. to give up his weapons of mass destruction, which may or may not have been there, uh, turned into an inexorable march to war. Um, how did you process that? You were, in fact, the guy who had to talk to the media, which I can, right. I'm sure you loved every minute of. <laughs> no. It's a great story how I ended up with that. But uh, I, uh, I came out of Afghanistan and I went into the Joint Staff in the late summer of 2002. And Afghanistan was what we needed to do, and it wasn't done, and there was a lot to do. And I got there, and there was a war game ongoing for the invasion of Iraq. And I was stunned. I had no idea. And I said, what are we doing? And they said, ah, we're war game in Iraq. I said, well, why would we do that? So for the next few months, um, what I saw was this sort of inexorable preparation for war. And the first few months, I thought what we were doing is posturing around Saddam so that we would have the ability to really force him to get rid of weapons of mass destruction. And I thought that was fine. Um, 
the uh, building airfields. We were doing a bunch of really basic things, uh, but we were being very careful about how much was sent. So for even, I was a vice director of operations. I was seeing all this stuff really closely. Uh, I still, it wasn't obvious to me that we we're going to send a lot of people, and it, it looked like pretty deft chess moves uh, to do that. Uh, then as we got to right before Christmas, uh, we went up and we had a deployment order for a whole bunch of troops. And Secretary Rumsfeld used to literally take a sharp pencil and go through a uh, request for deploying four people. And he'd go, why do you need four, not three? And, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And this one was for like 50000 And he listened for a little while and he signed it. And I walked out and I was there with a Brigadier General um, friend of mine. And I said, this is serious. They're going to war. They wouldn't send these guys if they're going to war. So that was right at Christmas. And here I'm the Vice J3, and I, to that point, don't think we're going to war. Um, then it, it kind of goes along. And my concern was I didn't see the need for it. I didn't think Saddam Hussein was a good guy. And I didn't think that defeating him would be particularly difficult. And I hadn't thought much about afterward, to be honest. I hadn't given it enough. Well, time. you weren't the only one. Yeah, exactly. But— but I just thought it was unnecessary. I thought the Pete, like ripe fruit, he'd he'd uh, go rotten and fall off. Um, so we went into this, and what I was disappointed about is the military. I was only a two star, so I wasn't in the highest meetings, but I was in a lot of meetings, and I never once saw the military go, "Wait a minute, is this a good idea?" I never saw the military say, "Really, what happens two years from now, three years from now?" We were instead doing the technocratic part. Um, Sam Huntington, the soldier in the state, we were being the the mechanic, work in deployment orders and things like that. And I think that the overlap between the military and civilian side of government needs to be richer than that. I hoped that the four stars were having that conversation, but I, I don't know whether they were. I get the impression, likely not. So we got all the way up to this point to do this invasion without ever really having that sort of grand strategy discussion about, okay, if the government of Saddam Hussein falls and Iraq is something different, what does that mean? Right. Even if we didn't, even if we were ineffective in predicting the chaos between the Sunni and Shia and Kurds after that, even if we got that wrong, you still take the keystone out of the political structure of the region. And so we didn't have those discussions you know, to any depth. And I think that was a, a big mistake because we ended up having them, of course, after the fact. Yeah, and we're still there. Right. Uh, so in retrospect, your concerns back then uh, played out. Uh, was it a mistake? Oh, I, I don't think a rational person can say it wasn't. I mean, the number of people who've been killed, the, the disruption of the Middle East— uh, clearly, there are Iraqis who have a better chance to participate in government now than they did under Saddam Hussein. Uh, but I don't think that war was the best way to get there. And we clearly unlocked Pandora's box on terms of foreign fighters. We empowered al-Qaeda in Iraq to be created, a problem that then gave way over time to ISIS. Now, many of those forces were there, so we didn't create the, the uh, dissatisfaction and whatnot. But we certainly opened it up, and I'm, I'm hard put to believe it would have come out as painfully as it has uh, under the other scenario. I sit here with you, uh, and you are a, um, uh, a, a scholarly, 
guy who uh, now a professor and so on. You spent a lot of your career in and running special forces, and you became sort of famous for tracking down terrorists and and killing them, and uh, and not just sitting in. In, uh, and giving orders, but actually going out on these missions with your men. Um, I, just uh, explain all of that, because this is yeah. an, uh, a, 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 the face of war that is going to become yeah. more and more, in this world, perhaps more common. And, and how do you personally uh, reflect on those experiences? Yeah. It was probably much more intense than most average Americans realize, particularly Iraq from about 2005 to 2007 or 8. Um, I mean, there was a point in which the command that I was leading, uh, Joint Special Operations Command, was doing 300 raids a month in Iraq alone, 10 a night. And these were not patrols. We're talking about raids where somebody's going to get killed or you know that sort of thing. So it was a pretty grim and we did that that level for two and a half years, from 2000, late five, uh, 2007 plus. So it was a very intense fight. It was a very, in many ways, an emotional fight because our counterterrorist forces are made up of a limited number of people who just kept going over and over. The same people stayed in the fight for the whole time. You'd rotate back for four months and then you'd be back in the fight. So... Um, it wasn't like someone goes to a year in a war like Vietnam and then comes home and goes back civilian life. This, so for me, there were there were a couple feelings. One, even though Iraq, the invasion was not a good idea. By two thousand four, Iraq had become a different problem. Al Qaeda in Iraq had shown up there and created. So now we didn't have a choice but to defeat them. That was a, you know, now a, an absolute requirement. So we took that on as part of the, we were a subset of the wider effort, and we had to create a completely different kind of force than we were. We were a hostage rescue, counter hijacking force, and we had to become this raid machine, which we did. Uh, We got very good at it. We got very focused at it. And of course, the danger is you get so focused, you get calloused. So we had to think an awful lot about what moral foundation are we standing on. Um, And so... And we did, and and I'm actually very proud of how the, the force navigated that. But there's no way to take away from the fact you're talking about very serious professionals going out every night uh, with the chance of killing or being killed, and what that effect on them is. I, I had a sergeant in Delta Force once look at me. And he said, sir, and I'd served with him for years before, he said, sir, I don't know how many people I've killed. And this is a moral guy. This is a, a really pro. But, I mean, we just put him into the, the grind night after night after night. I think we did the right thing. I think we, we ended up sort of crushing al-Qaeda in Iraq because it had gotten to the point there wasn't really another option but that's only an enabler. That's, I mean, that's not counterterrorism. You don't solve terrorism by going out every night and crushing a bunch of people because there's no limit to the number of terrorists. You know, you can, you can make it worse. It's a necessary thing to do to buy space and time until you can address the problems. Now, if you don't address the problems, you're going to mow the grass forever, the term that the Israelis often use. Um, and so 
I feel very good about what my force did, but I am realistic and humble about what effect we couldn't have. Now, in many ways, we sort of became the darling of people. There are movies about it and all this kind of stuff. And people say, that's great, and that's what American foreign policy should be. No, it's not. American foreign policy should prevent us having to do that. When we have to do it, we should do it very well. But we shouldn't get ourselves in that position very often. And then when we do, we ought to be figuring out how do we solve the base problems. You, uh, you wrote this book, Leaders, Myth, uh, and... Uh Reality. T- talk about yeah. uh, just very briefly. So, what are the fundamental principles? You you have this interesting amalgam of people, yeah. uh, uh, you know, including uh, uh, Walt Disney and Coco Chanel and Leonard Bernstein and you know Robespierre and you know just yeah. you know. Uh, but what, what what are some of the common principles of leadership that you derive? Well, the first thing I'd say is there kind of aren't any. Um, we studied, we took on this book because we came to the conclusion, me at age 63, I didn't understand basic leadership, what it is. I could execute certain things. I could get people to do what I wanted them to do, but leadership's bigger than that. So we went and we used the Plutarch model of profiling a number of people. We took 13. And as you say, it's this very diverse group, Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation, Albert and Martin Einstein. Luther King. That's right. And we studied them not to say what's common about them as leaders, but we wanted to study and understand why did they emerge as leaders? What about that? And we understood, we came to the conclusion that we look at leadership mythologically, really three big myths. The first is that if you've got the right behaviors or, or uh, traits, you're going to be a good leader. There's a generic leader. And over time, we find people who've got it fail in many cases, and people who have almost none of it succeed. So we, we were able to prove to ourselves that that's a myth, but we hold on to it. We train that. We bring people in and say, do this, seven habits of, you know. Then the next one was that the leader determines whether you succeed or fail. It's up to the general, or the CEO, the president. And what we found is they're part of the equation, but they're often not even the dominant part. It's this interaction between them and followers in the context, context of the moment such that they play into it. But if we are going to solve the problem by getting a new leader, often that's not the problem. The problem is very different. And then the last one is that we demand leaders who produce results, that generals got to win, politicians got to be elected, CEOs got to make money. And the reality is we don't. We actually follow and elect and select people who are often serial failures. And it all comes down to leadership is this result of this interaction between individuals, the moment, context, and then followers. And we tended to minimize the the latter two followers in the context. What we found in in all of these leaders was almost none of them started the movement. They all took advantage of a series of factors that were intersecting at the time that enabled them to come out. Then there was this interaction between followers, whether they were customers or employees or or whatnot, that produced this ability to, to do something uh, greater. And so as a consequence, leadership, in many times, the biggest common factor is when all those things happen, those leaders did choose to lead. Right. And read the moment. That's right. Read Sometimes the they read it almost in retrospect. They're kind of there, and then they go, okay. But others read it, like Coco Chanel read it perfectly and, and then ran with it. General McChrystal, I could spend hours uh, chatting with you. Um, 
there's so much more we we could talk about. But uh, I appreciate the time here. Appreciate you being at the University of Chicago at the Institute uh, of Politics, and and I uh, very much appreciate your service. That's my honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.